Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, here with Dr. Richard Lapchik, uh, Director of the DeVos Sports Business Management Program at the University of Central Florida. And this is going to kick off our Power of Sports series. Really excited to have Dr. Lapchik on uh, to talk a little bit about the power of sport. Um, You're probably wondering why uh, we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion and Dr. Lapchik's been in the business for a while, uh, but there's certainly a reason why he got into it, uh, and we'll dive in a little bit. But, but Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So this this series, and we're going to have five other individuals uh, following you and kind of their stories, their power of sport definitions and um, with each of those episodes, we've kind of asked about the power of sport towards the end. Uh, but I want to start this one off in uh, asking you what your definition of the power of sport is. Uh, and then we'll dive into kind of why you got into the work that you have been doing all this time. Well, I think the why will help you define me define what I think the power of sport is. So I'm going to start with that personal story and end up where you want me to go. So literally when I was five years old, I looked outside my bedroom window in Yonkers, New York, where I was being raised and saw my father's image swinging from a tree with people under the tree picketing. And for several years after that, I'd pick up the extension phone in our house, my dad not knowing I was listening and it was racial epithet after racial epithet being hurled at him. I had no idea what any of that meant as a five, six and seven year old, except I knew that a lot of people who hated my father, who I, for me, he was my best friend. When I was seven, uh, I was a Dodger fan. I was raised as a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And my dad asked me uh, if, he, if I would like to meet Jackie Robinson. He and Jackie Robinson were co-keynote speakers at Madison Square Garden. And by the way, the reason for all that angry calls and the effigy in 1950 was that my dad, as the coach of the New York Knicks, signed the first African-American player in the history of the NBA, Nat Sweetwater Clifton, a week before the NBA draft, when uh, Chuck Cooper and Earl Lloyd were also drafted and they became the first three black players in a league that's now 80% black, but there were a lot of people in America who did not want that to happen in in 1950. So back with Jackie Robinson, uh, I had no idea who he was in terms of his social significance, but as a fan of the team, he was one of the stars and of course I wanted to meet him. So I went and spent a little bit of time with him before he went on stage at Madison Square Garden and after it was over, uh, I went to, with my dad to a restaurant called Mama Leone's Restaurant. He had a reputation for courting the New York sports media and would spend as much time with them as they wanted to after whatever event he was involved in. Jackie Robinson went home to be with his wife, Rachel. And I'm happy to tell you that uh, some 50 years later, I help accompany Rachel every, every Monday, in the first Monday in March for the Jackie Robinson Foundation Gala. She's an amazing woman. She turned 98 this year. Uh, and it was a great love affair between the two of them. But on this particular day, I'm in, Ma- in Mama Leone's with the rest of the New York sports writers who obviously at that time were all white men. And the most prominent sports writer in the country at the time shouted across the bar, did you see that end showboating referring to Jackie Robinson? And my dad grabbed my arm and pulled me aside and said, some people only know how to hate. Again, I didn't understand it at that moment. My dad is a double inductee into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He was the first great big man playing for the original Celtics. 
I was six feet tall in the, in the eighth grade and, and one of the tallest players in New York City and was pretty heavily recruited by high schools. The number one program in the country at the time was called Power Memorial. I um, chose not to go there, but I became friends with a coach. And when he started the summer camp in 1961, he asked me to join his players who were going there. There were five white players and a black player. One of the white players who's been a D1 basketball coach for the last 35 years was hurling the N-word at the black guy day in and day out for the first three days until I finally challenged him. He knocked me out cold. The black guy's name at the time was Lou Alcindor, became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And a lifelong friendship began that was so profound that when his statue was unveiled at the Staples Center, he asked me to speak at it. When he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama, he asked me and Henry Louis Gates to be his two personal guests. In addition to his family, when I was scheduled for surgery in Orlando, he flew to Orlando to be with me. But the importance for me as a 15-year-old white kid is I suddenly had a young urban African-American lens to see what racism was doing to communities of color around the country. And I decided as a 15-year-old that I was going to spend the rest of my life working in the area of civil rights. I had no idea what that would take, what shape it would take, but I knew that was what I wanted to do to address those issues of social injustice. So I ended up going and getting a PhD in international race relations. It was the first one in the country. Uh, and my, did my doctoral dissertation on how South, how South Africa used sport as part of its foreign policy and the international response and the internet and compared it to how the Nazis had done that in the 1930s. It eventually got published as a book. I was asked to speak about apartheid. I formed the sports boycott of South Africa in the United States. Uh, for those of your listeners who don't know, South Africa was the most racist system of government on the face of the earth in the second half of the 20th century. If you were black and 81% of the people were, you couldn't vote, you couldn't own land, you couldn't send children, your children to get an education that you wanted them to get. You were there to serve a very wealthy white economy. And the international community for the only time in peacetime history came together to try to strangle the regime as a result. So there's an oil boycott, a trade boycott, a bank loan boycott, and a sports boycott. You could smuggle in oil, you could smuggle in trade, you could smuggle in currency, but you couldn't play sports in the dark. So it became South Africa's Achilles heel as the European countries stopped playing against them. I knew that they would eventually come to the United States. And sure enough, in, in early 1978, a South African Davis Cup team was coming to the United States. They were going to play at Van, uh, on Vanderbilt's campus in Nashville. So my role as the head of the organization trying to stop the matches was to go to Nashville uh, and try to build a protest and try to build the momentum to get the matches canceled. The African governments had asked me to announce that they would boycott the Los Angeles Olympic Games in 1984 if this team was allowed to come. So we held a press conference before my final speech of that weekend to the Vanderbilt student body. And all three networks were there. Dick Schapp was covering for NBC Nightly News at the time. And after I made the announcement, he came up to me and he said that the financial backers had pulled out. It looked like the matches were gonna be canceled. I announced that to the crowd, which was an anti-apartheid crowd. They went crazy. And when I flew home to Virginia that night, I thought maybe for the first time in my life, I had done something worthwhile. Next night I was working late in my college office. The office was in the school's library. The library closed at 10.30. At 10.45, there was a knock on the door and I ex expected to be the campus security routinely checking if they saw a light on after the building closed. So I didn't hesitate to open the door. But when I did, it was two men wearing stocking masks who proceeded to cause liver damage, kidney damage, a hernia concussion and carved the N-word in my stomach with a pair of office scissors. Laying in the hospital bed that night, 
I knew that if people had gone to the length they did to try to stop my father 28 years before, and to the length they did to try to stop me that night, that they must have thought that us using the power of a sports platform to address something like racism was having an important effect. And I decided that night that I would spend the rest of my life using that sports platform and using the power of sport to reach people to talk about issues of social injustice, particularly the issue of racial injustice in the beginning, but it's expanded to other forms of, of social conscience. So that's how I came to find out about the power of sport on a very personal level and to be able to use it in various ways for the next 50, 50 years after that. No, it's incredible. And thank you for sharing your story because I know that brings a lot of context as to a lot of the work that you've done. And if we tried to uh, read about all your different accomplishments and uh, books and, and this and that, it, it might take us a while. And that, that could be a, a second and a third and a fourth episode. So um, let's just kind of understand from your lens because you've done so much in this industry and you've seen so many things, created so many different relationships that the power of sport to you uh, can mean probably a hundred different things. Um, but to try and boil that into one uh, certainly is difficult. Uh, but for you, what does that mean uh, from your perspective, the power of sport? Well, I think there are two aspects that are, that are most important for me, that it can bring communities together and help communities heal. Examples that I think of in that context are after 9-11, the Yankees being in the World Series, heard me say I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan, which meant that I hated the New York Yankees, but I, like <laughs> a lot of other Yankee haters, became fans of the Yankees at that particular moment because of what they meant, not only to New York City and the nation, but that, that life might be able to resume after that. I think of the city of Boston and the Boston Marathon in the year of the bombing. The Red Sox had finished last the two years before, last the year after, but they won the World Series in that of the shooting at, at Parkland High School, a lesser known event, uh, not the sports part of it is, the lesser known that is. And in the horror, midst of the horror, nine days after the shooting, when 17 children, young people were killed, yet the Parkland ice hockey team had to make a decision whether they were gonna play in the state playoffs. I didn't even know we played ice hockey at the high school level uh, at the time, but they they were ranked last in the, in the uh, or they were seated last in the tournament if they chose to play, so it wasn't very likely. Uh, and they, but they made a decision to play. They won the state championship, seated last, and they the 17 players took their 17 medals back to the school and put them on the 17 memorials of those who lost their lives that day. And the Parkland students talked about that being the greatest healing power that they had seen. On the side of of enlightening the public about social justice issues. You know, we recently had the Milwaukee Bucks uh, decide that they were going to boycott in the NBA playoffs. And within an hour after that, the entire league and the Players Association came together to shut down the playoffs in protest of what was going on in America. I call that the most powerful uh, moment in the, in the history of the power of sport since the um, late 1960s when Tommy Smith and John Carlos stood on the podium in Mexico City in the face of what they would face would be for seven years, neither of them were employed. Muhammad Ali refusing to go to Vietnam, facing a five-year jail sentence. In that interim period, you know, maybe once or twice a decade, you see an, an athlete have the courage to stand up because they knew that was probably gonna be the end of their career. But now in 2016, Colin Kaepernick takes a knee and the power of sports story begins to be, the narration begins to change. 
I think the American public were generally opposed to it, but because of what's been happening in the United States, particularly the racial reckoning in the last few months, when those NBA players stood together with the league to, to stop, the, stop the games, uh, the public opinion swung very heavily in favor of the players. A Nielsen study on sports fans and racism showed that 75% of American sports fans supported the players and their political actions supported the teams helping them and those actions and even asked for the brands uh, to get engaged in social justice activities. So that there's been a tremendous movement of, pub of public opinion uh, to, to embrace the fight for racial justice. And I think athlete activism has, has played a large part because of the, their use of the power of sport. Yeah, you mentioned those stories and obviously uh, there's many, many others and just some examples of how no matter what the size of, of the organization is, you mentioned the, the high school hockey team, right? It can be something as small as that to, again, the Red Sox or the Yankees. And I think that's ultimately the power of, you know, it's just an individual, it's a team, it's a place, it's a community, and they exist in all different shapes and sizes. As you think about where we're at right now, and as you mentioned the Bucks and, and some of the things that have happened over the last couple of months, where do you hope to see things progress in, in this area of racial and social justice in terms of um, the platforms that we, that, that sports organizations have, that, that individual athletes have? Uh, and as you think about the power in which it can help create change, uh, where do you hope to see it go? Well, first of all, I think that um, athletes are feeling the power for the first time, they understand that the public is listening. Um, I think they have, you know, Generation Z and, and the millennials are uh, committed to social justice, I think more than other, any previous generations and they relate particularly uh, to NBA players, but also to other sports players. And I think that, you know, right now, uh, if we at the DeVos Sport Business Management Program have something called the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport, it publishes the annual racial and gender report cards, which measure the hiring practices of all the professional sports, as well as college sports and the sports media in an attempt to try to uh, hire more women and people of color and leadership positions in those, those industries, those sports. Um, and the, the needle moves very slowly. It's moved progressively on race. It's actually going in reverse direction in terms of gender hiring. But I think if athletes, once we get through the issues that are right before us right now, that you know, they're placing primary emphasis on the election, understandably and correctly, but in 35 days, that's no longer gonna be a factor. I think one of the things that they can focus on is hiring practices in pro sport, because I think uh, you know, we have had, we're, we have the same number of black college basketball coaches in 2020 as we had in 2006. We have one of the lowest numbers of NFL coaches uh, in more than in 14 years. NBA is generally pretty good, but they're even down, they were even down this year. The best league, ironically, is Major League Soccer, which has 41% of its, its head coaches are coaches of color. But I think when athletes turn their attention to this, including at the college level, college student athletes, uh, there's going to be enormous pressure to change those hiring practices. And I think that's going to have a great impact on who we see leading our teams. And from a hiring practice standpoint, a lot of that can stem from multiple different things, right? You, you see whether it's the high school athletes that are participating and they maybe see 
some of those people uh, of, of minority take a leadership position in the sports organization that maybe they're a fan of, right? And then they, when they see that, they see the perspective of, oh, I could be that, like that could be a career path for me. Um, but to your point, it hasn't really changed over the last 14, 20, 25 years to where that's enabled change from the ground up because it isn't just going to happen at the snap of a finger. You take a bunch of different people from, from other, you know, industries and, and poof, you know, you've got your answer. It's got to, there's, there's just like the athlete aspect of it. It's got to start from the youth to the high schools, to colleges, et cetera, to, to end up getting, um, you know, more professional athletes and more coaches uh, into the, into the funnel per se. Right. That's absolutely the case. And, and as a sign of progress, one of the historical facts is if you were a black head coach and lost your job, your chances of getting rehired were minimal. That's absolutely true in, in baseball and the NFL. And, and to some degree, it had been true in the NBA. But we had an example just recently where Doc Rivers was fired from the Clippers and three days later was hired by the 76ers. Five years ago, that might not have happened. I think the NBA... I had a conversation with David Stern many years ago when he said, you know, I, I want it to be the case that not only will nobody notice when we hire a black coach, but when we fire a black coach. Because I think there is a, still a hint of intimidation uh, and fear in college athletic departments that what if we hire a black coach and he's, he or she isn't successful and we'll let them go? Are we going to be accused of being racist? We have to get to the point where we understand that everybody is hiring the person who's most qualified no matter what the color of their skin, no matter what their gender, for the position and that they succeed, fantastic. If they don't, that happens in sport. And at the end of the day, I agree, right? Hiring the best person for the, for the role, no matter what, um, no matter where they come from, their experiences, et cetera, but ultimately the best fit for the organization. How can organizations continue to progress, continue to evolve? What are some best practices that you're seeing uh, that others can maybe latch on to, whether, you know, aside from even the coaches and the players, but in, in the front offices and, and other organizations? Well, I think you know, to, to increase the numbers is a good thing, but if you, if the attitudes in the organization don't change, uh, then it's not going to make any difference. People are going to have an unhappy workplace. So we highly recommend regular diversity and inclusion training uh, for all organizations. I'll give you an example. I speak on about 25 college campuses a year. And at the airport, I'm always picked up by the senior African-American or the senior woman on the staff. It's the athletic department that's bringing me it's the central administration. And on the way to, to the hotel or wherever they're taking me, the conversation is, oh, this is a wonderful place to raise a family. I've been here seven years. Tell me a little bit about themselves. Then after they hear me speak and hear the, the background and the things that I've gone through and they have more trust in me, this is almost always the conversation on the way to the airport. Can you help me get out of here? They feel that people look at them as if they were hired because they're a woman of person of color, that they were promoted because they were a woman of person of color, or they feel that they weren't promoted because they were a woman of person of color. So we've got to change. In addition to changing the numbers, we've got to change the attitudes. No, that's a great point on the attitude piece because it, you want to try and remove all um, notions of stereotypes or, or, or anything in that sense to be able to create that evil or that even level playing field, right? And regardless of where the opportunity is, 
Um, how have you seen some of your alumni progress into the industry uh, that obviously you stay in touch with and uh, see them progress into leadership positions? Um, what has been some of the trends from, from those uh, students? And then you compare that to your current students right now and kind of how they perceive the landscape to be. Well, for example, one of our alumni is Brian Wright, who's the general manager of the San Antonio Spurs, and we're engaged with discussions with the Spurs and helping them through this racial reckoning period. And that's because Brian's there in that kind of leadership position. Uh, Shelly Driggers Wilkes is the senior vice president for marketing uh, and community engagement for the Orlando Magic. She was the first woman uh, president of a G League team with the Magic's G League team prior to taking this position. And they all emphasize within the organization that they come to, and this is true, we have you know, individuals on lots of teams around the country, lots of athletic departments, and they bring that perspective of diversity is important. We're the only uh, program in the country that emphasizes diversity as one, and, and inclusion as one of our pillars, uh, as well as service to the community. And that's why students particularly choose us in addition to the, getting the business skills that they'll get at the College of Business at, at UCF, which is a great college of business, they're gonna get that perspective and that grounding of what they can do in, in the world of sports. Our students, for example, before they get ever step foot in a classroom, we up, except for this year during the pandemic, since 2006, we've been going to New Orleans, bring, it's a two year program, bring the returning students and the new students to New Orleans, showing them what happened after Hurricane Katrina and then helping rebuild homes. We've been there 58 times since 2006 when we worked on 158 homes over those years. Uh, so by the time they get into that classroom, they're already part of a team. It's not, I am meeting you for the first time, nice to be in class with you. We all work shoulder to shoulder. People have seen paint on my face and mud on my wife's hair, uh, as well as on themselves. We sweat it together and it, we come together as a team that first day, uh, which makes it ch fundamentally change the nature of our program. As a result of that, it's, it's a fa real family atmosphere where people really care about each other. But then they bring that out into organizations when they go out uh, and have the opportunity to move up in the sports organizations in the front offices that they work in to make that atmosphere alive there as well if it hadn't been already. No, that's great. And, and you definitely need that, right? In a lot of different organizations, wherever you go, uh, that, fe that feel of a family culture, a team culture, uh, the feeling of belonging, right? I think everyone, for the most part, works in the business of sports because they want to be a part of the team. They want to feel like they're part of something bigger than them, uh, something that can have greater impact than them, uh, and ultimately kind of leads back to the beginning of our conversation with uh, the power of sport, right? And being able to impact uh, communities around you, uh, communities across the country in which depending on you know, what role, what organization you're in, uh, you can have a, a vast impact on. Uh, as we transition kind of to wrap up the episode, I wanna talk about the, the uh, Institute for Sport and Social Justice real quick, because that is something that I know you're passionate about as well. Um, we had Delise O'Mealy on not too long ago on the podcast as well and, and her involvement, um, but just uh, provide the listeners a little bit of insight as to why the ISSJ was formed and kind of where you, where you hope to see it go in the future as well. Well, we founded it in 1985. I started something called the Center for the Study of Sport and Society at Northeastern University in 1984. And its programs made such sense in terms of using the power of sport that we decided to move it nationally and created this national academic 
original premise was that if, if, you join, if your university joined, you agreed that any athlete who came to your school on a scholarship and a revenue support who didn't graduate when their eligibility expired could come back at the expense of the university to finish their education. In exchange for the tuition and fees that, that you waived, they had to give 10 hours a week of community service. So it sounds like a noble idea. We had 285 colleges and universities join. More than 33,000 athletes came back to finish their degrees. 16,000 actually, actually did. They worked with more than 20 million youth. The community service outreach program donated 22 million hours of service. But as we progressed in time, all of the members of the consortium built their own outreach programs and their own degree completion programs. So we decided we were going to shift a program that would use our abilities in the areas of diversity, inclusion, gender violence prevention, leadership training, create programs that would be able to do that. So we're the largest program in the country at the ISSJ that does diversity and inclusion training. We've been doing it since the late 1980s. We started our gender violence prevention training now called Huddle Up in 1992, at a time that nobody was even talking about gender violence prevention until the O.J. Simpson case national headlines two years later. Uh, it's, it's, we've adopted what's happening in the world of sport to, to make us use it. As we learn more about human trafficking, we formed a platform to address human trafficking in a partnership with, with UNICEF um, to uh, take, our, take our athletes onto campuses and, and meet students and student athletes in partnership with those athletic departments to talk about human trafficking. In the first four years of the program, we expected maybe four or 5,000 people to turn out. We were doing 10 campuses a year. In the first four years, we had 74,000 people turn out to hear the messages about human trafficking. And it's because athletes and coaches were involved, not just uh, the traditional leaders on campus, but people want to hear from athletes. People want to hear from coaches. Uh, so our feeling is you can address virtually any social justice issue. You know, and it's another power of sport idea that you know, when we started, we were talking about education, finished making sure you, you emphasize that education. Two years later, Len Bias dies in a country that was calling cocaine a recreational drug, and we suddenly found out it was lethal, and we turned to, because of something that happened to an athlete, talking about uh, drug abuse in the United States. Several years later, uh, nobody was talking about the fact that 7.5 million Americans are problem gamblers, which has consequences for families and and communities much like that of drugs. And Pete Rose and Michael Jordan put it on, on the front pages because of their gambling. I mentioned the OJ Simpson case. We weren't talking about domestic violence in this country. It was kind of America's hidden secret because it was a family secret. And then the OJ Simpson case put it on the front pages. So we see even when negative sports stories take place that it can have a, a tremendous powerful impact on educating the American public about those issues. Yeah, there's so many issues that do exist and it seems, you know, insurmountable to try and tackle them all, but you've certainly done uh, uh, an, an excellent job in just trying to scratch the surface of it and, and bring light to it. I think awareness is obviously the biggest piece uh, in allowing others to team up to continue to make progress towards it. You know, I, I want to wrap up with uh, some rapid fire because why not, right? It's, it's always fun. Um, but Look, as, as you've been able to, I think, write 17, is that, is that the amount of books you've written? Um, you have to have a favorite one. Oh, I do. It's, it's Eddie Robinson's autobiography, the great Grambling State head coach. I was lucky enough to be asked to co-author his autobiography and get to know this amazing man. Um, 
who won more games than any other coach in the history of college football, sent more players to the NFL than any other coach in the history of college football, graduation rate of 80% in the sports that had hovered around 50% at the time, never had an athlete get in trouble with the law, became friends with, with coach and his wife. And when coach died, his wife asked me to deliver part of the eulogy and something I'll never forget. 12,000 people in the Grambling State Convocation Center. The speaker before me was Willie Davis, who was one of his great players from the 50s, who became a great all-pro player, won a bunch of Super Bowls with the Green Bay Packers. And, and Willie Davis asked the people in the audience, he said, I'd like all of Coach Robinson's former players to stand up. 2,400 men, sort of players from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, came to this location in deep rural Louisiana. It wasn't easy to get to Grambling because they wanted to thank Coach Robinson one more time for what he had done for them. And it's made me think ever since of when it's my time, who's gonna come, what will I have done to make people wanna thank me and to be able to talk to audiences that I'm lucky enough to speak to, to ask them when it's your time, who's gonna come, what will you have done that would have made a difference in their lives? So the Eddie Robinson book clearly is my favorite. No, it's powerful. If you could, you know, obviously you've met and spoke for and, and uh, interacted with and created relationships with many, many, many people. If you could pick three that are going to join you at a table of four for dinner, of those that you, whether it's Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, et cetera, uh, that you could pick that you'd have dinner again one more time with, who, who would they be? Um, two easy ones would be Nelson Mandela and Muhammad Ali, who I was lucky enough to become friends with both over the years. I said earlier that Kareem is a lifelong friend, so I would want Kareem to join me, but you know, maybe if I had four or five chairs, uh, I'd invite uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith to join. Could probably, you could probably squeeze in, maybe, maybe a table of eight instead. There you, um, there you go. We'll, we'll make it a little bit bigger, more uh, buffet style, perhaps. Um, you know, as you think about uh, the power of sport, where it's going, um, what is the one thing that you would love to see happen uh, as you know, things progress, things change, um, and impacts are made around the country and around the world. I would, you know, love to see us begin to address the systemic racism that I think people are starting to understand exists now. You know, the, the statistic that to me is the most uh, dramatic and awful statistic that exemplifies that is that Forbes list of the 400 wealthiest Americans have an aggregate wealth greater than all 42 million African-Americans combined. That's a lot to overcome. It's not gonna be overcome in the, in the short term. It's gonna, it's gonna be a long distance race for everybody to be involved in to wipe out the effects that that has on healthcare, on education, on housing, on criminal justice. Uh, but I think that's the route where athletes, because they are in a position of of having wealth themselves and now getting the influence they have as, as activists to address those systemic issues uh, in communities that it's going to make a difference and that we will begin those changes in a meaningful way so that we won't be having this discussion in another 10 years. That would, that would, that would be great. I mean, I think yeah, as you pointed out, it's your stories from the fifties the sixties the seventies eighties. We're in 2020. I mean, it's like, how do you go from from that amount of time? And surely there's definitely been change and impact, but how can we, um, you know, speed it up a little bit and, and continue to progress and, and not get uh, uh, still in where we're at? All right, last two questions for you. You're obviously, your dad was a coach. Um, if you could coach any team uh, in history, what would it be?
us students. That's a great answer. All right, last question. Uh, you were a basketball player. Um, you said six foot when you were in middle school, high school. Uh, what position would you play if you could be in the NBA? Well, I not only didn't grow, but I've actually shrunk as a 75-year-old. So <laughs> I ended up being a guard. Uh, one of the things that uh, I'm most proud of is that um, my dad, who was inducted into the regular Basketball Hall of Fame a couple of times, as I said, but he's also inducted into the New York City Basketball Hall of Fame. And a couple of years ago, I was inducted into the New York City Basketball Hall of Fame, the only father-son in the, in the hall. So that's something that means a lot to me. No, that's incredible. Uh, well, Richard, uh, appreciate the time, the insights, the perspectives, uh, the thought, and ultimately your view on the power of sport. And appreciate your time and getting this uh, series together. I know it's going to be meaningful and uh, impactful for those who listen. So thank you.